This is Laodicea, a city located in the Lycus River Valley in the southern portion of western Turkey. In the first century, there were three major cities in this river valley, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Due to the fact that there were six other cities with this exact same name, Laodicea was known as Laodicea of the Lycus to distinguish it from the others. This was an extremely rich city, and the people who lived here prided themselves on their financial independence and self-sufficiency. Of the seven churches to receive letters from Jesus, this letter seems to stand out from the rest on how it connects with many people today. While the ruins accessible here are really impressive, it's the message that Jesus gave to Christians here that really resonated uniquely throughout history, especially because of its parallels to our culture today. This is a city that worked hard and eventually became very prosperous, but only to discover the dangers that come from self-reliance and prosperity. The words of Jesus to the Laodiceans speak loudly throughout time as a warning to all of us who depend solely on ourselves. Several statements in the letter to Laodicea make better sense once the general context of this area is understood. First, the city's major liability was its lack of fresh water. The city of Hierapolis was only seven miles away, but it was famous for its hot springs. On the other side, Colossae, which was 11 miles away, had a good nearby supply of cold water. The city of Laodicea, however, did not have its own spring nearby. So they were entirely dependent on aqueducts to bring water to them from natural springs in the mountains nearby. Despite the cool temperature of the water at its source, by the time it traveled on the exposed channels of the aqueducts on its way to the city, it changed to a lukewarm temperature. The people of Laodicea would have understood the value of both hot and cold water. Nearby Hierapolis, with its natural thermal springs, was a spa destination for the entire region. Cold water obviously was desired and refreshing in a hot climate like this one. The only water supply that Laodicea had in its immediate area was mineral rich. This left it essentially undrinkable for the people of that city. Water with this high content of minerals leaves significant residue once it cools from its original thermal springs. The white cliffs of Pamakale are a great example of this. This was especially true with the water supply from Hierapolis. The hot springs in that city were even more mineral rich, especially with the mineral lime. In fact, to this day, everywhere these springs come to the surface and cool in that area, massive lime deposits are left behind. The reality of the water situation in Laodicea impacted the way Jesus communicated his feelings about their devotion to him. He used their context as a springboard to address their lack of commitment. And that message would have been heard loud and clear by the original audience. Jesus says to them, your casual approach to following me has made you virtually impossible for me to accept. I would just rather spit you out of my mouth. A second piece of background information is that Laodicea had become known as a banking center for this whole area. And over time, they became extremely wealthy and were really able to enjoy the benefits of a rich lifestyle. Interestingly, in just the last 15 years of ongoing digs, they've discovered unbelievable displays of the immense wealth that was present here in Laodicea, further confirming the accuracy of Scripture. 
they became so wealthy here in Laodicea that they were proudly able to proclaim their financial independence, even from Rome itself. One example of this was a nearly unbelievable situation in which they refused the emperor's offer of financial assistance for the process of rebuilding their city after it was destroyed in an earthquake in AD 60. In other words, they believed they were financially stable enough after a devastating natural disaster to pick up all of the pieces on their own. This kind of wealth and the impact that it had on people's way of thinking was a major part of why Jesus chose to approach this group of people the way he did in this letter. A final piece of background information has to do with a major commerce in this area. Laodicea was famous for its purple wool. Due to the mineral content of the soil and the water in this area, sheep actually grew a dark purplish wool coat. And this wool was obviously very expensive and desirable, especially for the ruling royal class. And this trade only enhanced their wealth because they were situated along the Silk Road, a major trade route, and their wool became world famous, generating huge income. The textile industry that resulted from this incredible phenomenon made fashion and dress an integral part of the cultural makeup of this city. And Jesus alludes to even this very specific part of their worldview in his letter to the believers here in Laodicea. Laodicea was a city with many things going its way. Business was booming, finances were strong, they were independent and self-sustaining. But Jesus knew that Christians in this city had something unique that they needed to hear from him, a message that struck deep into the hearts of their weakness. Jesus was saying to them, you can't do this without me. And that was a message that strikes just as powerfully into our struggle at Northridge Church in Rochester today. So what about you? Are you trying to live this life in your own strength? Are you casual in your approach to God? Jesus addressed these issues in his letter to this lukewarm church. Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. We're excited to have you here this morning. And man, Thanksgiving is upon us. The, the holiday season is right around the corner. And you know what that means for us who live in Rochester? It means cold weather is coming. And I know some of you might laugh at me, but I think it's already here. Like, it's cold already to me. And, you know, as the snow and, and the cold weather comes, you can almost feel yourself in the morning, you know, you're kind of under your covers, and it's so warm and cozy that you just don't want to get out of bed. You can almost feel it in your bones. It's, it, they ache a little bit. They're slow to move because it's starting to get cold. And one thing that kind of helps me get through the seven months of winter is, that was a joke, we can laugh in church, it's okay. I know they're not good and they probably won't get any better. But one thing that helps me kind of get through winter is two things. The first thing is a nice cozy fire in our fireplace, but then secondly, I like to go to local coffee shops or even Starbucks and get like a really hot latte. You know, like caramel brulee or pumpkin spice. And anytime I'm going through the drive-thru or anytime I'm, I'm, I'm stopping in a coffee shop and I'm getting a, a, a cup of coffee or a latte, I always have one special request. I say to the person who's serving me, I say, hey, could you make this latte extra hot? 
Because I like my coffee like barely drinkable. I like it so hot that when I drink it, it kind of like warms my soul up. And I don't know if you've ever been in my shoes before, but I w- a lot of times I'll go get a coffee, I'll ask for it to be extra hot, and then all of a sudden I'll get to the office or I'll be driving in my car and an email will come in or my phone will ring or a meeting will take place, and I get caught up in the busyness of life and the busyness of work and parenting that by the time I get back to my latte, it's lukewarm. And it's lost all of its luster. It's really, in my world, good for nothing. Because you can't microwave it. It tastes weird after that. And it's lost its value. It's become lukewarm. And what's interesting is that can happen to us as Christians. In fact, it happened to a church in Laodicea where they became casual and safe in their faith. And Jesus called them those words, lukewarm. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Revelation chapter If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to provide one for you. It's going to be on page 993. You can open up on your iPad, your iPhone. You can pick us up in our app and follow along and take notes. And as you're making your way to Revelation chapter 3, I want to welcome our campuses. Thanks for hanging out with us. Welcome those of you who are watching online or if you're going to watch us later in a podcast. Thanks for being with us this morning. And we've been walking through in a series called Seven through Revelation chapter two and three, looking at the seven letters Jesus writes to these churches. And what's amazing is 2,000 years ago they were, they were written, but yet they're so relevant to us today. And we're in week six of this series, and you might have noticed this, is these churches don't really struggle with a whole lot of different things. I mean, if you study these seven churches, you'll notice that a lot of their struggles were similar. And it's amazing, even 2,000 years later, we still struggle with the same things. Not a lot has really changed. It might look a little bit different in a modern world, but not a lot has really changed. And you're going to find this to be true in this passage today where Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea. We pick it up in verse 14. He says this through a man named John. He says, to the angel, <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And again, we see this constant theme throughout the letters where Jesus identifies himself, he introduces himself, and here he does it a little bit uniquely. He says, these are the words of the amen. Now, if you grew up in church, you've been going to church for a while, that word amen might be a common word for you. But outside of religion, outside of the the context of the church and religion, amen is kind of a unique word. If you haven't been coming to church for a while, you you might not hear this in, in your job or parenting or wherever you are in life very often. But in the church, you might hear, in fact, someone during the message or during a song say those words, amen. And the definition of that word is simply to let it be so. When someone says amen, they say, hey, let that be true of my life. Let it be so in my life. But what's interesting is Jesus introduces himself as the amen. But in first century, that word was a legal word. It was a word you would find in contracts that made the contract binding. At the bottom of a a contract, they would put amen. And what it meant was let this be so. And Jesus here is referring to this church as a faithful God, a God who says, if it's going to be, it will happen. Let it be so. I'm the amen. In fact, the next two two words, he says, the faithful. 
and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And so Jesus introduces himself to this church, but then he continues in verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And you notice when you read this is Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He jumps right into it. You see how serious Jesus is. In fact, Laodicea is one of two churches of the seven letters that receives zero encouragement. And that's exciting for this church. Jesus just gets right to the problem and he says, hey, you're neither hot nor cold. And because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The actual Greek word there means to vomit or to projectile. Jesus is saying he's serious here, like where you are right now makes me sick. And he's talking about this this difference. He says, you're neither cold nor hot. And a lot of us interpret this passage, I think, incorrectly, because we think hot is that person who is on fire for Jesus. But we think cold is that person who just doesn't really want to have anything to do with Jesus. They walk away, and we think that God just wants us to pick sides. But we have to recognize that hot and cold are the same thing in this passage. They're both good things. It's the value of hot water and cold water. They were both valuable to the city of Laodicea. In fact, Jesus speaks directly to their circumstances. Because Laodicea was a a city that a lot of people wanted to live in. They were wealthy. They had beautiful buildings. They had a medical center. A medical center that most other cities could not have access to. They had All the amenities of a good city. Everybody wanted to live there other than Ephesus. Laodicea was the spot to live. But they had one major problem. They didn't have a water source. They had no water to drink. And we know the value of water. I mean, for the last five years, we've invested in a village in Africa who had zero clean water to drink, and we brought them clean water to drink, and it changed the village. And so we know the value of water. Water is life. And so this city in Laodicea had no water. And so what they would have to do is they would have to pipe it in. If you went to Heropolis, there was hot springs, In fact, when we were at this city, you could see these springs popping up just about everywhere. I was like, free jacuzzis all over the place. It was amazing. And then if you go to Colossae, just about 11 miles, they were known for their cold springs. But the problem was, is by the time Laodicea piped this water in from the mountains, whether it was cold or whether it was hot, by the time it traveled through these pipes and it got to their city, it became lukewarm. And Jesus uses their water problem. He's not talking to them about their issues with their water. He's using their water as an illustration to springboard to their spiritual condition. He's saying to them, just like your water, you in your faith and your walk with me, you've become lukewarm. You become casual in your faith. You're more concerned with being comfortable than you are with following me. You're playing it safe. And ultimately, this is what Jesus was saying to this church. Half-hearted faith is good for nothing. Half-hearted faith, if you're not all in, why waste your time? Half-hearted faith that is casual and comfortable and safe and easy is really no valuable to me. In fact, Jesus gives us the imagery of spitting it out of his mouth. Beautiful picture there. He says, I don't want half of you. And what's interesting is he tells us how, he tells this church how they got there. 
I mean, this is your thesis. Half-hearted faith is good for nothing. But he shows the church how they got there. Verse 17, he says, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, we know from the video and Laodicea was a very wealthy city. They had all the gold they could ever want. They had all their needs met and all their desires met. They had more money than they knew what to do with. And what happened, because they were a wealthy city, it led them to a place where they started to depend and trust and bank on their wealth more than they were God. It led them to a place where they slowly became spiritually numb because they had money that could provide everything that they wanted for. And it's really easy, honestly, in our culture today to find ourselves in those exact same shoes, where we depend on something else other than God. And I'd ask you today, in your world right now, what do you depend on more than God? What do you trust in? What do you bank on? What do you depend on more than God? Maybe today you're just like Laodicea, where your business is booming and finances are flowing. And you just kind of recognize, as long as it stays that way, that, hey, I can provide everything I want and everything I desire because I have money, and so you know what? I don't really need you, God. I don't really need you. Maybe today it's your education, where you're a physician, or you're a doctor, or you're an educator, and you know you have the backbone of your education. It will take you into your future. It will lead you wherever you want to go. And so you bank and you trust in that education because you know it will provide your future. Maybe today it's your 401k or the stocks you're investing in. Maybe for your retirement, you just think, hey, if things keep going that way, I'll be set for life. And you bank on that and you trust in that. Maybe it's a relationship today, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, where you just say, God, as long as this relationship is in my life, you know, I, I've got this. And what happens is, what happened in this church is they depended on their money. And when we depend on something other than God, it leads us to a place where we just say, God, we don't need you. God, we, we really don't need you. Now, we would never say this out loud with our mouths. We would never look at God and say, hey, God, I just don't really need you. But the truth is, we live this way. We live this way. Where we say, hey, as long as I have my finances in order, God, I'll leave you here just in case of an emergency. But just stay there. I'll live my life on my own. Because really, I, I don't need you. As long as I've got my education or this relationship or I've got my 401k booming, as long as I have this thing, God, I can do this on my own. I can figure this out. I've got this. And this is what the scripture says in, in verse 17. It says that you're rich, you've acquired wealth, and you don't need a thing. See, Laodicea was so rich that in their history, there was this massive earthquake and it destroyed the city. And what would happen in, in this culture is when a city was destroyed, it's a lot like our culture today, the government would step in and provide some financial help. And so Rome, Caesar went to Laodicea when their city was destroyed, and he said, hey, I wanna help you finance the rebuilding project. And they were so wealthy that they told Rome they didn't need their money, they would handle it on their own. And they did the exact same thing to God. 
God, we have our money. We have all we need. You can stay back here and you can be our emergency plan, but really, at the end of the day, we don't need you. We don't have to depend on you. And I think a lot of us, we fall into this trap where we depend on something other than God on a regular basis. You see, dependence, that word dependence is one of our staff values. We have values as a staff that we live by or we try to live by every day, and you can see them at our Arondacoit campus. There's a wall in, in a place where we meet on a regular, uh, on a regular uh, occasion as a staff, and on this wall are all these words. There's about eight of them. There are staff values, and the largest value, the biggest word that you will see is that word dependence. And under that word, it says God is the source of all we are and all we do. And what happens is in life, when we choose to depend on something other than God, we fail to realize that everything that we have and all that we are is solely and completely from God. It's completely from him. And do you recognize that today, that your job or your education or your money or your business or whatever you have, your kids, your home, the bed you sleep in, they are all gifts from God. And, you know, some of you today, you know, you're in church and you're checking it out, but you're not sure about this whole God thing. I'm not sure I believe in God, but I want you to understand something today. Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean you're not dependent on God. Because the very breath that you breathe right now is a gift from God. The fact that you can stand up and leave this building is a gift from God. And we fail to realize that when we depend on something other than God, he's the source of all that we are and all that we can have. In fact, this, this is what his word says. John 15, verse 5, it says, I'm the vine. This is Jesus speaking. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And here's the part we don't want to hear. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That will shatter your ego. And that will break down your pride. Because I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me, because there's something inside of me when I read that last line that says, really, God? I mean, come on, God, like, seriously, apart from you, I can do nothing? Like, I, I, my pride and my ego says, okay, let me show you how much I can do without you. I'm just being real in church. When I read that, I'm like, okay, God, really? And I fail to realize that the only reason I'm standing here today, the only reason I'm breathing, the only reason I have a home to go to is because God has blessed me with it. He's the source of everything that we have. And when we depend on something else, we fail to realize that. And when we depend on ourselves, it sets us up for spiritual failure. When we trust in something, whether it's our wealth or our education or our stocks, when we trust in something more than we trust in God, it tees us up for the enemy. It tees us up to become just like Laodicea, Luke, war. And we walk in this slippery slope where we continue to walk in our spiritual failures. I find it really fascinating that in life, when, when life is going really good, when things in your life are, are safe and easy and comfortable, we live in this reality where we don't depend on God. We've got it. But the moment something bad takes place, it's almost like a reality shake. It's almost like God's little reminder like, hey, you actually do need me. 
When things go bad and we lose somebody we love or something devastating happens, it's almost God's way of reminding all of us, like, hey, you can't do this without me. And I think sometimes we forget this. But Jesus continues, verse 17, he says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I wonder when the church in Laodicea read this, I wonder if they almost laughed. I wonder if they were almost like, <laughs> obviously Jesus sent the wrong letter to the wrong church because we have all the money in the world. There's no way we're poor, Jesus. Like, this, we, must send, we need to send this somewhere else because this doesn't apply to us. And this is the scariest part about the whole church scenario is they couldn't see it. They couldn't see their own spiritual condition. And this scares me half to death. I never want to get up to a place in life where I think I'm doing all the right things and God looks at me and he says, you're missing it. I never want to get to the place in life where I think I'm being blessed by God and he's showing me his favor and then I stand before him and he's like, you are actually poor, wretched, blind, and naked. And I think some of us, we can't see. Because if you looked at this church from afar, they looked really good. They had all the money you could want. They probably had big buildings. They looked the part, but the moment you step past the facade and the look and you got in, you realized that they were blind and they were naked and they were spiritually lukewarm. And how many of us live in this reality where we think, man, God's doing amazing things for me and God looks at us and he's like, actually, I'm not. Because blessings can blind us from the truth. Blessings can blind us from the truth. Sometimes we view the blessings of this world, finances and health and safety and comfort. And we can have all those things and we think God is blessing us, but it actually blinds us from the reality that we are spiritually bankrupt. That was the church in Laodicea. They had everything you could desire. And from a worldly perspective, man, they look good. But from a spiritual perspective, they were bankrupt. And what Jesus does in verse 18 is he transitions. He says, here's the problem. You have half-hearted faith. You're lukewarm. And you've gotten there because you depend on something other than me. <clears throat> but in verse 18, he says, here's how we change that. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And so Jesus shifts and he says, hey, here, let me give you some advice of how we change this half-hearted faith. He says in three unique ways, and this is what I, I think is so powerful in this text is Jesus speaks directly to their circumstances. He's not a distant God who has no clue what's going on. No, he speaks directly to three things to this city. He says, first, I want you to buy gold from me. What he's saying to this church is you have all the money, you have all the gold in the world, but your gold won't do what my gold can do. My gold will actually make you rich when you think you're rich. He says, secondly, he says, I want you to wear white clothes. White referring to, we've seen this color before, to his righteousness. He's calling them to his righteousness. But what was interesting about wearing white clothes was in Laodicea, they were known for their cloth. 
In fact, really, really, really rich people would travel from miles away, miles and miles away to come and get some of the purple and black cloth of Laodicea. Because their sheep, as they drank the water, the water was full of all these minerals. And it was dyeing the sheep's wool purple or like almost a blackish color. And people were wanted it. It was like J. Crew. I mean, they had to get some of it. It was awesome clothes. And so rich people would flock from miles to get some of this rare commodity. And Jesus says, hey, you've got the best clothes in the world, but they don't compare to mine. They don't compare. I want you to wear white clothes. And then third, he says, I want you to put salve on your eyes. Again, Jesus speaks to the reality because in Laodicea, it was a major medical center an area where they trained people in the medicine field. And in fact, a, a physician, a doctor in Laodicea, invented this eye salve. And people who were struggling with vision loss, people who were struggling with eye conditions, they would put this salve ointment on their eyes and it was creating healing in their life. And Jesus says to an area where they were known for their medical industry, where they were known for being inventive, he says, hey, I know you have salve. But my salve will make you truly see. In fact, check this out. Laodicea was known for their school of medicine, which was the chief medical center of the region. One of the school's graduates wrote an influential textbook on the eye, and he developed a revolutionary eye salve. People would travel to Laodicea simply to visit this medical school and purchase the eye salve for their different eyesight problems. This is something that the Laodiceans were very proud of, a medical breakthrough that again illustrated their self-sufficiency and capabilities. But in light of that, Jesus tells them to buy ISAV from him. The people who had the whole region coming to them for medical care, he was instructing them to come to him for healing. In other words, you think you have all the remedies. You think you can see but really you need to purchase salve from me so you can see what really matters. Isn't it interesting that in a very prosperous and developed location, Jesus clearly says, you've missed it. You've missed me. You can't see it. You can't see that you've allowed your dependence on yourself to make you casual and lukewarm in your relationship to me. You're blinded to your own spiritual drift. So how about you? Do you think you're self-sufficient? and able to live without the guidance and leadership of Jesus? Have you allowed your success to lead to a place where you've just become numb to your Savior? The Christians in this city clearly had. Because of that, Jesus urges them to buy from Him. In other words, to seek Him and follow Him with all that they have, so that they would come to a place that they recognize that all they are and all they have only comes from Him. Here's what Jesus was saying to this church. He's saying what God offers you is so much more valuable than what you can earn on your own. And that's the same thing he's saying to us today is what I can give you and what I can offer you is so much more valuable than anything you can earn on your own or anything this world can give you. But I wonder, do we really believe that? I mean, do I really believe that? Because sometimes... In life, it seems like what the world is offering me is so much more appealing and so much more valuable than what God wants to give me. 
And I think we have to come back. Laodicea had to come back to this reality that God was offering them so much things, so much more valuable than what they could earn on their own, what they could buy on their own. In fact, he winds down in verse 19 and 20. He says this. He says, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. Jesus gives them a small piece of encouragement. He says, I love you. Even though you're lukewarm, I still love you. But because I love you, I'll rebuke you and discipline you. It's almost like that moment as a parent where you're a father or a mother and you look at your child and you say, this is going to hurt me a little more than it's going to hurt you. And Jesus says this word. We've seen this word in in other passages. He says, repent. He says, walk away from the lifestyle that you've been choosing. There's a different path for you. And ultimately, Jesus was asking this church and really our church this question, us as individuals and us as families, this simple but yet powerful question. Has your faith become lukewarm? Has your faith become lukewarm? Has it become easy and comfortable? Is it casual? Do you just go to church every Sunday and you kind of go through the motions and that's kind of the extent of it? Has Has your faith got to the place where you no longer stretch yourself, where you no longer take risks for the gospels, but you're more concerned about being safe and comfortable? Do you realize that Jesus never called us to comfort? I know that might be a newsflash for some of us, but Jesus never called us to be comfortable as his followers. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, as Jesus is investing in 12 men, his disciples, he constantly took his disciples places they never wanted to go, places that they didn't feel comfortable. He asked them to do things that would stretch them, that would move them, that would lead them, that would guide them, ultimately to prepare them. And we have to realize as Christians, where we grow in Jesus Christ, where we become a better disciple, is at a place of uncomfortability. Where we get uncomfortable. Where we get open and say, God, whatever you want. So how do we break this mold of lukewarmness? How do we break this mold as individuals where we say, man, maybe I'm there. Where I'm more concerned about my safe Christian walk than I am about taking risks for the gospels. How do we as a church get out of this lukewarmness? I'll give you one thing today. Just one thing. I think we have to stop playing it safe. Stop playing it safe. Where we say to God, we're willing to go and do whatever you lead us to. And I want to illustrate how we do that this morning. Because I think for all of us, there's been a time in our life, if we know Jesus as our personal Savior, there's been a time in our life where we were passionate about it. Maybe it was when you first got saved. Maybe it was when you started understanding what God's word was speaking to you. Maybe it was at a moment in your life where you felt God's voice speak to you. But there was some point in our life where we got to the place where we were comfortable being uncomfortable. 
A place where we were so in love with God that we would do whatever he called us to do. Where he said sacrifice financially, we did. Where he said share the the love of Christ with your neighbors. Where he said serve the homeless or jump into the foster care system. We just did it because we were following Jesus. We didn't even look at the ground because we didn't care. Because our eyes were so busy, focused on our Savior. None of this really scared us. No matter how much the board started to shake or the waves of life got, we were so in tune with who Jesus was that when he called us to crazy and dangerous and wild and exciting, we were like, yes, God, I'm in. I'll go for it. This doesn't make any sense, God, and I don't know how this is going to work, God, but if you say go and you say do it, I'm your guy. But in this journey wild and crazy something changed maybe it was success maybe your business was booming and it meant your time and so you had to stop leading group to take a break maybe it was success and popularity as a high schooler in college where all your friends needed you and it led you to a place where you had to take a break Jesus or maybe it was something devastating in your life a diagnosis from a doctor or a loss of someone you love, and and those things in life pushed against you, and you started realizing, like, what am I doing? This is scary and uncomfortable, and okay, let's just take a break. So we drop down. And maybe it's just for a season, right? I need to figure out some doubts that I'm having in my walk with God. You know, I, I just need to pull back a little bit because... You know, my business needs me or my children need me or my family needs me. And so we decide to take a break, which is a good thing. But the longer we sat here, we realized, wow, this is pretty nice. It's comfortable. I'm safe here. I don't have to sacrifice here. I don't have to worry here. This feels good. So what started as a season leads to a year, two years, three years. And the more we got safe and the more we got comfortable and the less we sacrificed, we wanted actually more comfort. Instead of getting back up and saying, God, okay, I'm ready. I'm refueled. I'm I'm energized. Lead me and take me. No, we're like, ah, this is nice, God. In fact, it led us to a place where we wanted more comfort. So we go through life just holding the bee. We say prayers like this, God, just protect me. Watch after my kids, God. God, I know you call me to to be uncomfortable, but this is so nice, and I just pray that you continue to bless my business, God. I I pray that you'd watch over my kids, because I don't want them to experience the world. I don't want them to know what this crazy world's like. Protect them, God. Protect my family, my wife, my husband. God, protect us. We don't want to experience pain, God. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to share Jesus with our neighbors, because that's weird, and they might reject us. So keep me here, God. Keep me safe. And we live our lives right here, comfortable. And then we get older and our lives 
winding down and we pray prayer again. God, I don't want to die a painful death. So if you could, God, just take me in my sleep. Take me so it doesn't hurt slowly and gently. And so we pray that prayer and God begins to take us and we die and we get to heaven and we're like, wow, yes, did you see that? And we get to God and we look at God and we're like, Jesus, I've been waiting for this moment. I'm ready for those words. I've read about them in your word. Just tell me, well done. I'm waiting for this moment. Tell me, well done. And unfortunately, God looks at us and he says, you played it safe. You were more concerned with your comfort than you were with my will. You played it safe. You know, I'd ask you this question. God, let this question be on my heart and it's been wrecking my world. Is if God answered all of your prayers, like the prayers you pray on a regular basis, if God answered all of those prayers, would it impact more than just you and your family? Or is it all about you and your blessings and your safety and your comfort? Because we have a choice today as individuals and as a church. Where do we want to live our lives? Do we want to stand on the beam and say, God, let's do this. I don't know what this means, but come on, let's go and and live a dangerous and crazy life. Or do we want to just kind of be comfortable? Because it's easier here. feels better here. But a prayer I've just prayed a lot of my life is when I die and I breathe my last breath, God says, you're done, Drew. My prayer for my life is when I die, I want the devil and his demons to rejoice. I want them to say, thank God that guy's gone. Because I'm so willing to say, God, here I am. And wherever you lead me, No matter how difficult it gets and how painful it gets, if it costs me my children, God, if it costs me my job, my business, my education, my status, my popularity, or whatever you're clinging to today, it is yours. The only way we can do that is because my life, I have to recognize, and we have to recognize that my life is not my own. It was bought, it was purchased on the cross of Jesus Christ where he shed his blood and he gave it up for me. He purchased my life. And it's no longer what Drew wants, but it's solely what my Savior wants. And we live with open hands. We say, God, my finances, they're yours. Ouch. We say, God, My children, they're yours. Ouch. God, my business, my livelihood, my reputation, my status is yours. Ouch. Where do you want to live? It's only a question you can answer. Where do you want to live your life? Maybe a better question is, is it your life or is it his life?
where will you choose? Let's pray. God, I know in my own life, man, it's so easy to want to be comfortable. And God, I'm so guilty of praying that prayer. God, please protect me, protect my family, protect my children. But I never ask, is that what you really want? I'm so busy and consumed with my comfortable Christianity that I never stop and say, God, if you want to use my children, if you want to use my wife or me or my family or whatever we have, do it. And I'm sorry, God, for living that way. And I pray today would be different for me. If anybody else, just me. That you would lead us with open hands, that we would say, God, whatever I have and all that I am is yours. So help us live that way. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.